0: Pray, God. Thank you so much uh, for how you use this church and how you've used uh, even today, uh, Brad and Daniel and our whole worship team to prepare us for worship, to prepare us to look into your word. I pray that you would speak by your word in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So uh, last night I had the had a dream. Anybody an interpreter here? Okay, I'm just kidding, but. I really had a dream and I showed up at a church, it wasn't this one, and I was in some raggedy shorts and a shirt and I was supposed to preach. And I got really worried, I was just telling Josiah this, I got really worried and I looked to the side and I saw a hoodie that was a zipped hoodie and I was like, oh good, then I'll look a lot better. And I put that on, (sighs) I hope I'm not that ill prepared today. Uh, so I've got a quick question. Do you have a family member, extended or whatever, a family member that is hard to love, that is hard to accept, that is even at times maybe hard to be in the same room with? Oh, no, let's not point at each other. <laughs> in, in my family, uh, I've got an aunt. That almost all of our family has said, you know what? You're out here. And you're not invited to stuff. And we're not going to c- communicate with you. And I think what she hears in that is that we don't love you. And she loves Jesus. She has come to faith kind of late in life or kind of returned to her faith late in life. And she loves Jesus. And she is hard to be around. It is a challenge to be around her. Uh, She has, uh, at times, she has verbally assaulted me, my wife, uh, all of our family members in some way, shape, or form. So do you have a family member that's hard to love? Our pastor in Jerusalem, when we were in Jerusalem for three years, it seemed like every third or fourth week he would mention his sister, who he wasn't talking to, and he just couldn't And that was hard for me to listen to, but then I thought, oh wait, I've got that family member that's hard for me to love too. So today I think as we take a look at Hebrews chapter 2, the last nine verses that Brad so kindly read all of them for. Thank you for reading all of them, everyone for participating in that. The reading of God's word is so important. Um, And because Brad has prepared us in that way, I'm just going to read verse 9 to kind of Connect because verse 9 really connects with 10 through 18, and then we'll continue through this passage. Verse 9 that we studied last time, so that was about a month ago, says, "...but we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone." And what's interesting here is that the last little half a sentence there by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. The writer takes that little statement and expounds upon it for the next eight or nine verses. Okay? So that's what we're seeing as we look at Hebrews two, ten through eighteen. By the grace of God that he might taste death for everyone. And he pretty much says to us, Let me explain. Let me explain how important this this idea is. And let me explain what happened when Jesus came to earth and when he tasted death for everyone. That's what he does here. So, here we go. Um, okay, here we go. Uh, verse 10. For it was fitting for him... For whom are all things, and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to perfect the author of their salvation through suffering. Uh, the hymn here, for it was fitting for him, is talking about the Father. It was fitting for the Father, for whom all things are all things, excuse me, and through whom are all things, and bringing many sons to glory, to perfect the author of their salvation through suffering. So what is this bringing many sons to glory? Have you ever thought about your glory? Our glory? This is doesn't sound right, right? I thought we usually talk about God's glory. Christ being glorified. But this verse somehow reads, for it's fitting for Him for whom are all things and through whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory... Uh, What's going on there? Our glorification, our bodies, our holiness, that's going to happen. We are to reflect Him. In some state, uh, in in some uh, manner, we're going to reflect Him. Remember, we shall be like Him. That's what Paul tells us. We shall be like him. That doesn't mean that we are gods. I'm not saying that. It doesn't mean that we are the ultimate ones to be glorified. No. But in a way, we're going to be like him. We're going to have glorified bodies. And we are going to be holy. And there's, I think there's another key in this verse. Um, Jesus didn't need to be glorified. We needed to be glorified. Now that may sound really weird. Let me try and explain. Jesus eternally existed with the Father in perfect Trinity, fully glorified. But the Father, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, the Trinity together, they wanted to bring you to glory. They wanted to bring you to glory. They wanted to bring me to glory. And so Christ was sent. And so Christ was sent to reveal the Father to us, to pay our sin price, to save us, and then to bring us to glory, to bring us to be with him, to bring us to that place where we are like him when we see him face to face. And I think the biggest question from this whole passage might be, how can Jesus be perfected? Okay, At the end of that verse, uh, in bringing many sons to glory, To perfect the author of their salvation through suffering. So somehow it says that God, that's the hymn there, is going to be perfecting the author of their salvation through suffering. What in the world? That Jesus would be perfected. We have to consider a passage like this and say, What is going on here? That Christ needed to be perfected? I thought he was fully glorified. And then he had to... He was. He was. So what's going on there? This perfect is actually, the idea in the Greek is a view of um, fitness. That he would be exactly fit for this role that he is going to play in the life of the believer. Exactly fit. Not that he was short morally. He did not come up short morally. He didn't need to be perfected in that way. God didn't need to take a few things off. No. He was perfect. He was fully God and fully man. And he needed to be perfected in that he would be made exactly right for the office that God had assigned to him. And so, he was made human. And so he was made human. Verse 11 continues, For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. Are you seeing what I'm seeing there? For both. He who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father. For which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. I think it's a powerful verse. Those who are sanctified is the, is the Greek. Uh, every once in a while the Greek is pretty important as you're studying the Scriptures. And I think here's one of those places uh, what we see here um, is that this verb is used in the present tense. Those who are being sanctified, it's used in the present tense. That means it's a process and that it's continuing, that we are in it. It has started, it's continuing, and it's going to have a final result, but it is continuing. Sanctification isn't a one-time event that happens and we're done with it. Uh, it's not something that, that we can stop and start as we wish. Uh, Why is it not something we can stop and start? Because uh, the voice, the Greek voice going on here is the passive voice. That means it's being done to us. God is sanctifying us. It's not that we are sanctifying ourselves. It's not that we step in and say, you know what? Thanks for saving me, Lord. I got this. If we think about our Christian life that way and we say, oh, I can do this. I've got this. No problem. We'll see you in about, you know, 40 years. I'll see you in 60 years. I'll see you in 80 years. You saved me. I'll see you then. No. It's not the idea. For those who are being sanctified is what's going on there. We're being sanctified by God. We can't stop and start it. We're not in control. That doesn't mean that we don't say, Lord, how do you want to sanctify me? I'm willing. I want to live in the way that you call me. Let me study the word and see what you've called me to. Lord, how would you want to sanctify me today? We say that and we pursue that, no doubt about it. Numerous imperatives in the scriptures would encourage us to pursue that. But the fact of the matter is, we can't sanctify ourselves any more than we can save ourselves. Those two things are done by God, He is the actor. He is the one doing that work in us. When we believed, it's not us saying, you know what? I'm going to save myself real quick. No. It's not our action that is effective there. It's his. You're not responsible for your sanctification in the same way you're not responsible for your own salvation. God did the acting in your salvation. And he continues to be the agent of action in your sanctification. Now, this creates a little bit of a problem for someone who might believe in lordship salvation, I would say. This passage um, teaches that God sanctifies us and we can't do it by ourselves. So if someone says, you've got to show me all the fruit and you've got to prove to me that you're really a Christian, let me see the things that you're doing, and if you're not doing all these things, then you're probably not a Christian. I would say to that person, hold on a second, look at verse 10 look at verse 11 he is the one sanctifying me he is at work in me if you're saying i'm not showing you quite enough fruit to be really a christian you're saying that god isn't at work in me that god didn't save me and that i could i think the same problem exists for someone who says we can lose your salvation because he's the one who saves us that would mean he would have to unsave us it wouldn't be me unsaving me he would have to say you know what I'm bringing you in, you're saved. Okay, I'm throwing you out, you're not saved. Okay, I'm bringing you in, you're saved. Okay, oh, I'm throwing you out, you're not. There's nothing that would look like that in God's Word. In other words, there's nothing that would look like the previous that, um, Lordship salvation, in my opinion, would be true because He is the one who sanctifies. It's not us sanctifying ourselves. Moving on, I think uh, really close to my heart is as that uh, verse finished, he is not ashamed to call them brethren. And this goes back to my story, my story, quote unquote, at the start. Who's that family member that's hard for you to love? Jesus among the brethren. The idea here is uh, Jesus as worship leader. Daniel... Every week you get to come in and lead worship, and it is wonderful. And Daniel, oh my goodness, the songs today, I was just like, thank you, Lord, because I needed that. And the amazing thought here that the author of Hebrews brings in is that Jesus is going to be, and in a way I'm going to talk about today, is he is our worship leader. And there's going to be this moment, this is out of Psalm 22, when Jesus Jesus stands among these brethren. He stands among the believers and leads our worship. And he is not ashamed in that moment to call them brethren. Uh, And in verse 12, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brethren. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. Jesus as worship leader, standing among the brethren, saying, Oh, he had these. These are my brothers and sisters. These are mine. I love these. And he says that about you, believer. We are sons and daughters with the same father. That's what's made clear here. And this is a unique thing that uh, only the author of Hebrews speaks this way, saying that we're children of Christ. That's a weird way to look at it. But Christ is God. And in that way this author of Hebrews says here here's some freedom we are we're his we're his children saying I'll proclaim your name among my brethren. Uh, and we'll see in 14 therefore since the children share okay so he talks about these children. Now I've got uh, a question is that how it often works with your relationships on earth do you love your brothers and sisters? Uh, And I'll even say for me, do you love, Josh, your blood, brothers and sisters? How well am I loving my family members, even if they fill in the blank? Even when they do this thing, fill in the blank. So I look at my aunt, and I say, how well am I loving even my blood, brother or sister? But Christ here says about us, no matter how heinous a sinner we are, if we're believers, what he says about us He's not ashamed to call them brethren. He is not ashamed to call you his brother. He is not ashamed to call you his sister. And I would say about myself, I'm a heinous sinner. How could Jesus do that? The perfect one, unashamed to call me brother. Incredible. Verses 12 and 13. Continuing the thought from the previous few verses... Our author now quotes David from Psalm 22 and Isaiah from chapter 8, and I've kind of already read a bit. But he says, verse 12, "I will proclaim your name in my brethren. Excuse me, I will proclaim your name to my brethren. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children whom God has given me." Can you dream of, now I know some of us are going to immediately go to Mark, but can you dream of the best pastor possible? Can you dream of that? Pastor Mark is a wonderful pastor, a loving pastor. I've just been blessed by being here in these last two years. I want you to dream of the best pastor possible. How about the dearest, most loving, encouraging, wisest friend you could ever have in a church? Think of that person. Jesus was full of grace and truth. And I think this uh, one view that we can correctly understand about Jesus from this passage, and these two verses boil down to these facts. Jesus proclaimed the name of the Father among the brothers and sisters 2,000 years ago in the synagogues that he visited. He did. He proclaimed the name of God among those brethren in that time period. He does so today by his Spirit. When we read his word together, Jesus is in the midst of the congregation and Jesus in the midst of the congregation. Can you picture being in that church in the midst of that congregation with Jesus leading this very same Psalm of David in verse three, uh, David says that he inhabits the praises of his people. And we know at the Great Commissioning, Jesus says, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Thomas Constable says the expression, To the end of the age, literally means, He is with us the whole of every day. Jesus promised to be with us every day forever. It does not mean that He will cease being with us when the present age or the Messianic Kingdom comes in. That's not the idea. It doesn't mean that He's going to cease He does say, does he not, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. And how about our worship here today? Is Jesus in the midst of the brethren here? If Jesus is our worship leader here, when we meet together as believers, what should our worship look like? Uh, I remember once hearing Alistair Beggs preaching, and he he was talking about this idea, and he said... Our worship, if Jesus were among us, if we really believed that Jesus was here with us today, what would our worship look like? And I think, I'm not, Daniel does an incredible job leading us. It's, the question is for me, where's my heart in this worship? The worship through song, the worship through reading, the worship through the teaching of the word, the worship. Where's my heart in those moments? There are weeks that I come in here and my heart isn't where it should be. And so I'm sitting here listening to the word of God taught to me and I should be celebrating and I should be recognizing that Jesus is among us. Jesus is living in me, living in you as a believer. And it should change our worship. If you read through John 14 and 15, I think you will no one would deny that Jesus lives in us, and he wants us to abide in him. When we gather, he's among us. A lot of people like to quote where the two or three are gathered, he's among them. I think that's on another topic, but the facts are true. If we are believers and we're together, he is with us. Does our worship reflect that? Also in this verse, before we move here into verse 14, almost halfway done. Also in this verse, Jesus put his trust in the Father. But I thought Jesus was fully God. Well, he is. He put his trust in the Father. Put His. How does God have to trust? I don't know. I can't tell you. I can't explain how that works. But what he says, and again, I will put my trust in him. Jesus' trust was in the Father. Do we do the same thing? The God of the universe, creator of the world, who holds, holds all things together, he put his trust in the Father. Have you trusted the Father today? If you haven't trusted him with your life, if you haven't believed in who Jesus is, I would challenge you, if Jesus is willing to trust In his own father. Why would we not trust? And then as believers, do we daily place our trust in God? Or do we trust in our own ideas, our own thoughts, our own fears? We're about to get into that. Verse 14. Verse 14. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same. That through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death. That is the devil. Uh, now, just recently this week, I was uh, speaking with a student at Calvary about empathy. And uh, we, had a, we had a great teacher come to Calvary last fall. His name is Jeff Cox. He works with Abundant Life uh, with their um, counseling ministry. And he talked about empathy and how we can take the perspective of someone else. In a situation where they're sharing something that's on their heart, that's hard for them to handle. And how you can try and help them by taking their perspective, by trying to feel with them, by connecting with something in me that knows that feeling. And saying, oh, maybe I haven't gone through that exact thing, but I can feel your pain. I understand your pain. Trying to connect with them. And in this verse, I think the key question may be, how could this be true, that he himself likewise also partook of the same, that he might render powerless him who had the power of death? So Jesus had to take the same. He, In a way, you've got kind of an empathy going on there, uh, and a sympathy, you could... uh, think about those together and consider those, but how could this be true here at the end of 14, that he could render powerless, him who had the power of death, at the same time as Second Corinthians 4, four, which says that the devil is active in this world. Uh, he's the God of this world. First Peter 5 tells us that your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. How could Jesus render powerless him who had the power over death, the devil, be true? If those other verses are true, they seem to kind of butt heads. From its inception, fear and death are the works of the devil. We know that he is a murderer from the beginning. The word for power here, okay, that he could render powerless, the one who had power over death, that word for power... In the Greek is kratos, which means the power in the sense of dominion. That is his dominion. Satan's dominion is death. That's where he lives. He's a murderer from the beginning. That's who he is. And probably the chief sense in which he has power is that he can demand death. He can ask for it. He can say, they need to die. You have said, God. God that those sinners must die. They need to die. So his demanding of death is probably the main idea in which he has power in death. And it was through Satan that sin first entered the world. MacDonald says, God's holiness, I just lost my place there, verse 14, <clears throat> McDonald says that God's holiness decreed the death of all who sinned. God's holy. If we've sinned, we deserve death. That's what's true. So in his role as the adversary, the devil can demand the death penalty be paid. He calls for it and says, they deserve it. He says it about me. He deserves it. He's a sinner. You are holy, God. He deserves death. Take his life. Kill him. Every time a believer died before the death of Christ, I think Satan could cheer. I think Satan could cheer. Yes, he would say, death has won." But after Christ's death, death is the door to eternal life for any believer. And those who went before, death was paid for by the blood of Christ, if they're a believer. Again, in Philippians 1, Paul states, For to me, living is Christ, and dying is gain. Death has no sting any longer for the believer, post-Christ's death. Ultimately, God will bring us into a world in which death does not exist. So when this verse says that him who had the power of death, the devil, was rendered powerless, that's the idea. It has changed. Things have changed after Christ's death. Verse 15 continues, And might free those who through the fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Now I think this one's a little more simple. When you read this verse, what do you think about? And that he might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Can you see the world around you as you read this verse? Is that what it makes you think of? For me, it did. The fear of death is now unnecessary for the believer. We don't have to live in slavery to this fear, as humanity has throughout the history of our world. A strong attribute of death is separation. Separation. Spiritual death is obviously separation from God. But physical death has a strong sense of separation too. But for the believer, there's no spiritual death. And for the believer, physical death is not about separation from God. It is about a separation from those on earth, those family members. That There is a, a pain that comes along with death still. But we are never separated from God. Instead, it's a home going with a view of reunion with all believers. It's a new body. Uh, It's reunion with the Father, Jesus with the Spirit, and the eternal future that he has promised us. Those who will be raptured won't experience death in any form. The fear of death enslaves unbelievers. And that's what, when I see verse 15, that's what I think about. Um, And you know what, in my own life, I have to consider, uh, when I was young, I didn't think much about death. I didn't think how scary death might be. I didn't think about, uh, the fear of death very much. But as I get older, I know some of you in here are going to say, well, whatever. But as I get older, I have started to think about that and say, hey, this is real. I'm 42. My best friend in Dallas died when he was 43. He was five years older than me. He died when he was 43. And it's, uh, you know, when uh, I got this lump in my chest, I haven't told very many people about it. But anyway, um, my wife's a nurse; she knows about it. Uh, and it's like it makes you wonder. It makes you think about it. But the truth of the matter is uh, that for believers, the fear of death no longer enslaves us. But for non-believers. The fear of death is totally enslaving, and that's what this passage says. He has freed us, uh, who, verse 15, through the fear of death, who were subject to slavery all of their lives. If you don't know Christ, this is the reality. This is still the reality, and that's why we should be sharing the gospel in Belton and beyond. And it leads them to behave in ways that please Satan, that fear of death. It leads people to live in a selfish way, living for the present. And I'm going to quote, for the last time, Alistair Begg, don't let anybody tell you that because of some part of your history or something that happened to you when you were young, that you must live in some limping, faltering, abused, disruptive lifestyle. Jesus died upon the cross to destroy the one who holds the power of death and to liberate those who all their lives were held in slavery and not least of all the enslavement to the fear of death. He died to liberate us. That's what we see here in this passage. No longer are we enslaved to that fear. Consequently, we need not feel compelled to live for the present, but we can now live For eternity, okay. Verse sixteen. Verse sixteen. For assuredly, he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendant of Abraham. Really easy verse. uh, Aside from how you want to interpret the descendant of Abraham, okay, can be interpreted a few different ways. Uh, It does clearly say that he's not in it for helping angels. Salvation is not about angels. Here, the antithesis of an angel is mankind. So they're, they're antithetical here. And it seems to that seems to be the point of the verse. God gives help to mankind, not to the angels, with the death of Christ. First Peter one tells us that the angels long to look into those things, salvation, but it's not for them. Another option here uh, uh, about the descendant of Abraham. Another option is that this descendant of Abraham reference could be just about believers. So it's either just about mankind, or it could be specifically about believers. Those men and women who have believed and how would it be that it would be that because we know that like in Hebrews will continue and we're going to see and then into James we'll see Abraham spoken of as the one who was it was credited to him as righteousness when he believed so the sons of Abraham or the descendants of Abraham could be referenced to those who are like Abraham those who have believed. Uh, now, I think where some people might go wrong with this passage, just really quickly, is that if they say the descendant of Abraham is only the Jews, okay, so some might claim that and say, this is only talking about the Jews. But we know from the rest of Scripture, when you compare Scripture to Scripture, that can't be true. The Gentiles are now... In, this morning, my daughter said on the way to church, she said, I read, Hebrew, I read Ephesians this morning, Dad, and there's no wall anymore. I said, okay, so what does that mean? And she said, okay, Jews and Gentiles are together. And I said, okay, so should we go to the same churches and worship together? She said, yeah. And I said, well, but what still separates us? Nothing. And that's the truth. And that is the truth. So this verse isn't about only the Jews. No, this verse is about men or women or believers, one or the other. Verse 17 Therefore, man had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. And this kind of brings to mind that Philippians 2 passage where Jesus emptied himself. Here he had to be made like his brethren in all things, fully human, fully God. Why? Why? In order to become a merciful and faithful high priest. That's a reference kind of back to verse 10. For it was fitting for him, uh, if he's going to bring many sons to glory, to perfect the author of their salvation through suffering. To perfect the author, Jesus. So he had to become like us. It's kind of an interesting juxtaposition. That we see in the scriptures. Uh, Romans eight twenty-nine says, For those whom he foreknew, for he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. And then John three two says, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears we will be like him, because we will see him just as he is. Oh, excuse me, first John three two. So What we see there is that we need to be like him, and we will be like him. And for that to take place, he had to become like us. It's crazy the way God worked that in his uh, plan of human history. He had to become like us so that we might become like him. And then we see here, in things pertaining to God. So therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. I think that's referencing his sacrifice, his intercession on our behalf, his advocacy for us. He had to become like us if he was going to do those things. To make propitiation for the sins of the people, he had to become like us. And all things, and as high priest, this high priest is this, this. is the first introduction of high priest in Hebrews. You know, it's a huge theme. We're going to see so much about high priest as we go forward, but it's introduced in this verse, and uh, we'll continue. And then in verse, uh, I, I will read really quickly Hebrews five one and two because I think it really relate to what we're uh, looking at as Jesus became high priest. 5, 1 and 2 read, For every high priest taken from among men is appointed on behalf of men in things pertaining to God. In order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins, he can deal gently with the ignorant and misguided since he himself also is beset with weakness. So he represents us before the Father. That's what a high priest did. Represent the people. I'm so thankful for his ministry to the ignorant and misguided. The Lord knows I fit those descriptions more often than not. And so does Kelly. Um, my wife. <laughs> um, not misguided by her. Misguided by my own you know, desires. In verse 18, as we finish. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. So he suffered in body, mind, and emotions. He suffered. The temptation to escape the shame of the cross was early and repeatedly present to Christ. The temptation to escape it was there. By Satan in the wilderness, you know the story. By Peter, and the spirit of Satan, when Jesus says, get thee behind me, Satan, I've got to go to that cross. And uh, in Gethsemane, you remember. And it caused intense suffering for Jesus. That temptation caused intense suffering. But, But because he was so tempted, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Do you sense that in your life, believer, that Jesus is able, and he comes to your aid when you are tempted. I'd never thought about it this way until I read this week. One uh, opinion out there. Jesus was tempted to a greater extent than any person has ever been tempted. Mm, It's kind of hard to measure, right? Uh, He only lived 33 years, and if I lived in here, I was tempted more. I don't know. Here's why they said that all of us are tempted to the point to which we break and we fall and we sin and he never broke his temptation continued his temptation never stopped that temptation that we have that lasts a few days a few hours a few weeks and maybe we fall and we fall well we had a month of temptation that same temptation for Christ never ended It just continued. He went further into temptation than any man or woman has ever gone. And that was important, I think, because then he understood and he could play this high priest role. He could have that role in our lives. And to conclude today, in our passage, Jesus is said to be the author of our salvation, he is our sanctifier. He sanctifies us. We don't sanctify ourselves. He says, "You are brother, and you are sister, and he calls us in, and he is our deliverer. How is your view of Jesus a bit off? you know Do you see him as these roles? Do you see him as brother? Do you see him as that dear, the one that cares about you that much when we come into worship together? How do we see him do Do we look At all other true believers, and say to ourselves, We are from one Father, and thus I am not ashamed to call you sister or brother. And who is that person in your life that it's really hard for you to say, Yeah, this brother or sister, yeah, yeah, I'm not ashamed to call you brother or sister? The devil does not hold the power of death. Any longer. We are no longer enslaved to the fear of spiritual or physical death. We're not enslaved to that. That doesn't mean it doesn't cause emotions that are a struggle. It does. Remember in Philippians 1, Paul says, For to me, living is Christ and dying is gain. Death has no sting any longer for the believer. Absent from the body, present with the Lord. There's no spiritual death for a believer, for we will be resurrected like Christ with glorified bodies. And finally, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. In your moment of need, in your moment of temptation, do you recognize that you have the creator of all things, the Alpha and the Omega, a merciful and faithful high priest who knows your plight He has experienced it. He has experienced it. That temptation. And he is able to come to your aid. It's true. He's ready and waiting. Don't try to do it on your own. You can't. Call on our merciful and faithful high priest in your moment of temptation. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for Hebrews chapter 2. Uh, thank you for just deciding that you wanted to reveal this to us. That you would allow us to have a bit of an understanding of what happened when Christ took on human form. And why he did it on our behalf. Uh, Jesus be near us this week as we go out of here. And in our moments of temptation, and our moments of trial... Pray that we would call on you, that we would rely on you, uh, because you are faithful and you are powerful. In Jesus' name, amen.